it's arguable that all human societies have created and enjoyed music and it's undeniable that for many people today music is a central part of their lives providing enjoyment, meaning and identity. But what kind of music and why? Who creates it and who profits from it? Can music be a genuine escape from the troubles of the world or does it have to inevitably mirror society's prejudices and distortions? What's the role of music in fermenting and supporting struggle? Karl Marx was aware of music's centrality in our lives, writing, and I quote, Only through the objectively unfolded richness of man's essential being is the richness of subjective human sensibility, a musical ear, an eye for beauty of form, in short, senses capable of human gratification, senses affirming themselves as essential powers of man, either cultivated or brought into being. And to translate that, musicologist Mark Lindley says, Mark cited musicality as a prime example of the potential richness of human sensibility, saying it would be a debasement of art to be made an explicit vehicle of dogma. So while music is created at the intersection of the personal and the political, it cannot be reduced to a political line. It gives richness to our culture, but also it gives riches to its stars, their venues and managers. Lots of questions, and over time we hope to bring you many of the answers. That's why The Sound of Solidarity is launching a new sub-segment. In coming months, we'll talk to a range of people about music, politics and society. Given that we're The Sound of Solidarity, we were thinking about calling the sub-segment The Sound of Music. However, our lawyers have told us if we did that, we'd be in a world of pain. But in the spirit of the movie, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And we do so with Dr. Tami Gadir. Tami is a lecturer in music industry at RMIT University. Her new book, Dance Music, A Feminist Account of an Ordinary Culture, will be published later this year by Bloomsbury Academic. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is Solidarity. .net.au. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Tammy. Thank you, David. I'm also on Wurundjeri land. Well, congratulations on the impending release of your book. You love dance music. So isn't it a bit dismissive to call it an ordinary culture? Uh, well, thanks, David. Thanks very much for that. Uh, the book has been bubbling along in the background for a long time, so I'm very pleased that it's going to come out this year. And regarding your question about why I call it ordinary, this is a direct nod to the cultural scholar Raymond Williams' statement that culture is ordinary. And uh, this was the title of an essay that he wrote in the 1950s. Williams was born in the 1920s into a working class family in Wales and later in life he came into a world, the University of Cambridge, that was very unfamiliar 
And because of this lack of familiarity, he was able to see things that people around him took for granted, which made his perspective a very valuable one. And uh, when he wrote that culture is ordinary, he was arguing against what had been the prevailing view of culture to that point, which was that it was something for the elite and something that might now be qualified with the adjective high, so high culture, or capital C culture. And Williams rejected the idea that only people of certain social classes, the higher ones, could claim to have culture. And one of the accounts he has that I really love is of observing high society people sitting in tea houses and gossiping. And the notion that this was culture while the ordinary people he grew up with in Wales going to the pub was not culture was absurd to him. So instead he defined culture as a whole way of life, far from something that could only be claimed by one class of people over others. And he insisted that we all have culture, we all grow up in culture, and culture is made up of many constitutive elements, which include just our everyday practices. And I guess essentially you could say he was boiling down culture to a humbler concept and bringing it down to earth in a way. And so I'm treating dance music in much the same way which may seem odd in a way because dance music and DJ cultures are hardly associated with high culture, typically. But scholars whose work I've been engaging with, as well as commentators and fans over the last few decades, have been working very hard to differentiate it from commercial or mainstream popular music for quite some time. And one of my book's primary goals is to oppose this particular mission for various reasons that I hope will become apparent as we continue chatting today. Mm. Well, I suppose Williams was trying to democratise culture and dancing is one of the most democratic forms of culture there is since pretty much all of us can do it in one shape or form, although nobody would want to see me doing it. What defines dance music and what are its roots? This is one of those tricky questions to answer because you have to kind of decide which strands you want to focus on. You know, dance music in this book is electronic music. It's produced using either analog electronic instruments or computers, digital electronic instruments or a combination. And as far as how people recognise it when they hear it, repetition, uh, loudness, low frequency sounds, sometimes so low that you can feel your internal organs shake if you're in a loud enough environment. And it's repetitive on purpose because the whole point is to make people dance and to be sort of fully immersive in that, you know, your body is essentially swallowed by sound and driven into motion. And I guess the other characterising component is in the social realm, which is that DJs are the main performers of the genre, and it's normally played in nightclubs or in other spaces that are focused around dance floors, and normally at night. People are often drinking or on recreational drugs or both as well. And as far as origins go, it's possible to start with the interactions of pre-humans with their natural environment, but that would be a very long account, so we won't do that. There are several more recent and direct strands to trace in its most contemporary incarnation. Since around the 1940s, Jamaican musicians in Kingston pioneered the sound system concept, which was a coming together of engineers and MCs and DJs to put on street parties. Using the turntable the vinyl record and the loudspeaker for this rather than a band of trained musicians was economical. And in addition, you could do a lot of things to manipulate the sound by physically messing with the record and turning the turntable into a musical instrument. So with engineers helping, they built speaker systems that could emit very low frequencies at very high volumes. 
And uh, by the 1960s, many of the techniques and technologies that we now take for granted in DJ culture were used by musicians from these sound system cultures, as well as many of the effects we're now familiar with, such as echo and reverb and the removal of vocal parts to create what we'd now call, call the remix. And much of the story of what we now think of as DJ culture, whether you're talking about the 1970s beginnings of hip hop in the Bronx or disco in New York City underground, A lot of these scenes learned techniques from Jamaican sound systems because of the diaspora and also were stories of people working within their own severe constraints economically and also socially. So people came up with ways to make and play music for dance floors in environments where economic oppression and social marginalisation were the order of the day. So in New York, for example, underground dance floors were for LGBTQI, black and Latino people. These were literal escapes from a very unfriendly overground world. And they were really vibrant and very special and they started to acquire a a reputation that attracted broader uh, numbers of people. Also, they had really charismatic DJs who pioneered new mixing techniques and dance floor aesthetics. So these were eventually exported to other scenes such as Chicago, which became known for its own unique dance music culture. And, you know, some of these pioneering dance floor aesthetics included a total absence of choreographed or heterosexual partner dancing and the act of dancing quite literally all night to a continuous flow of music played by a DJ. So most of these baseline practices that we see in nightclubs with dance floors today come from those scenes. Let's talk about escape because capitalism is a grinding, horrible system and alienation means most of us live lives which are unfulfilled in many ways. We have boring jobs, uh, we worry about money, we get trapped sometimes in all sorts of situations, domestic and otherwise, that are not pleasant. And so we search for escape and people find escape in different ways. Some people do it gardening, some people do it reading, some people do it riding a bicycle, some people go to the footy. Dance is a form of escape, but you also talk about it as something a bit more. You talk about it as something that's transcendental. So what do you mean by that? And to what extent do you think escape is ever really possible? It's a good question. I suppose this is the idea that the amalgam of sound and social experience that makes up the dance floor can help people to transcend something. So that may just be their everyday lives. So that that could just be literally the escape you're describing. It could also be higher states of consciousness while they're on dance floors. And it can also be longer-term life transformations. And I have seen this happen in the uh, dance music scenes that I've uh, moved between. There's also the element of the impact of sound. And low-frequency sounds can move people, (laughs) literally and figuratively. And there's something about the experience of being immersed like that and the repetitive beats, especially if people are on mind-altering drugs, that can bring people closer to other people and also a sense of themselves. And it can be quite a profound experience. So in the book, I address and describe what this experience can be. uh, But then I turn my attention to a kind of two-pronged critique of that. One is that not everyone who seeks transcendence on the dance floor can get it. Uh, And this is because of, you know, the exclusionary behaviours that reflect those of the wider world, which takes us back to the idea that dance music is ordinary. Uh, It's rarely, if ever, free from from the oppressions off the dance floor. 
And the other part of the critique is in terms of a discourse which is in the scholarship that I'm intervening in as well as quite a lot of fan media commentating on on dance music culture. Um, And that discourse states that these various forms of transcendence constitute a politics in and of themselves. And this is heavily informed even if indirectly by a specific subset of the 1960s counterculture that came to dominate many of our historical associations with the counterculture. So I really have to credit the work of a particular media scholar from Stanford, Fred Turner, who who did a lot of really in-depth historical research on this. And he talked about this particular subset of the counterculture, the new communalists. And these were people who took the spirit of the anti-Vietnam War movement and radical student politics and removed any semblance of organising from them. Instead, the focus moved toward a sort of denunciation of hierarchical forms of governance, an embrace of entrepreneurialism very openly. And it's not a coincidence, by the way, that many of these people ended up becoming the sort of 1990s Silicon Valley CEOs when they sort of were into their 50s and also an embrace of new technologies. And all of this was in the service of the narratives of a sort of higher selfhood. So specifically, this would involve the idea that music and the arts on the right drugs um, facilitated by these fancy new machine technologies, um, but in the backdrop of natural environments, which was a big aspect of it, the sort of escape to nature, could lead people to a kind of enlightenment, which was ultimately more important than, say, going on strike or protesting. And uh, I really love this quote from Turner. He says, if the self was the ultimate driver of social change, and if class was no more, then individual lifestyle choices became political acts, and both consumption and lifestyle technologies, including information technologies, would have to take on a newly political valence. And so all of this kind of had a direct impact over time in contemporary dance floor contexts, uh, not just in the sort of off-the-grid forest parties, which were definitely a directly referencing hippie aesthetics and lifestyles and you know ways of living but also um, even in the most profiteering music festivals that are dance music focused like I don't know if you've heard of the Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas it's an enormous kind of corporate rave and it's you know it's sponsored by alcohol corporations and Snapchat and cryptocurrency exchange platforms and you name it and they literally the, the people who write the material for their website, call it a distinct union of technology and nature where elements mix to ignite the sense and inspire the imagination. And most importantly, they say that the headline act is you. So it's very much about the self again and all of these kinds of environments that are are about enriching the self and and the, the experience. And I think that is not a coincidence because dance music culture, if you think about when disco in the sort of early 70s started to take place, it it was in the backdrop of a neoliberalizing kind of free market world. (laughs) And how could it not, in some senses, be responding to that in some form, whether it was absorbing it or contending with it or both at once. So I think, you know, the question of whether it can be real, this sort of escape, you know, it can certainly be real at the level of the individual who wants to transform from the inside uh, and it can be real at the level of a base of fans. And, you know, look, in fairness, quite a lot of people first encounter some form of radical politics through music scenes of their youth. And dance music is no exception to that. 
perhaps a minority of them continue it beyond the dance floor. But I think I would challenge anyone to show me a transformative politics at scale from this environment, which is what is either implicitly or explicitly argued, depending on what you're reading. Mm. Yeah, that, that interests me because you talk about transcendence and there were other terms that you used. And it sounds religious or of a parallel to religion. And I'm not trying to say that, that dance is a religion. That's obviously ridiculous. But it seems to fulfill some of the the criteria that Marx talked about when he talked about religion. And mostly people know that Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. The implication is that the, the ruling class drugs us with religion. But critically, he talked about it initially as the heart of a heartless world that people turn to religion because the world is so foul that they need somewhere where they feel safe, somewhere where they feel maybe respected and where they can get some kind of sense of peace and, and, and hope. Uh, and it's in that sense that he talked about religion as the opium of the people. Now, without reducing music to organised religion, it seems to me there's some parallel there which then feeds into the individualization. So I'm not arguing against music and I'm not arguing against dance but I suppose I am arguing that it seems that there's a tension between individual escape and the potential for mass revolt. Is that too blunt? I don't think so. I'm coming closer and closer to that way of thinking myself and I started the research from a perspective of someone who believed in something about the potential of the scene. It wasn't necessarily clear to me what I believed was the potential, but I, I did have some amorphous belief that it that it held something. I don't know if I would have called it a politics, but it felt utopian when you were there, I suppose, in many instances. Of course, until it didn't, which we'll get to. <laughs> but I do think there's an element of neutralising the drive to organising and to the kind of revolution that, you know, a Marxist would argue for because in my experience, most people go back to their everyday lives on Monday morning and they've done their politics on the dance floor and that's it. Maybe that's unfair, but I've seen it argued that it is sufficient to participate in events like that and even if they're constrained by the timing of the event and the spatial bounds of the dance floor, that there's still something powerful and radical in the act of showing up and losing your mind altogether on drugs to repetitive beats. And the longer I thought about that and the longer I considered the kinds of interventions that are required for genuine transformation, the less I was convinced by that particular argument. And it helped that I had some shortcuts to that perspective which was that the dance floor was not always utopian and we'll come on to that but yeah I certainly agree with you everybody should have fun on a Saturday night broadly speaking but on Monday morning you've got to fight the boss and dancing is an escape but it's not a, it's not a challenge to the boss and in fact we'll come on to talk about the way in which bosses actually obviously profit from the scene but first of all let's pick up on the fact that your book is subtitled A Feminist Account and in the book you talk about the sexism within the scene. Uh, you talk about how you yourself were belittled when DJing, uh, assumed that you were the girlfriend of a male DJ. 
you talk about how women are targets for sexual harassment at venues or on their way home and and the exclusion of in some cases the exclusion of people who are LGBTI so what can be done to fight back against this kind of demeaning and sometimes downright scary behaviour? I think for starters supporting social movements that fight gender oppression and all other forms of oppression and there have been some quite tangible flow-on effects I think of the large-scale reckoning that was prompted by Times Up and Me Too and all of the associated movements for instance I didn't foresee when I started this research I started researching dance music actively about 13 years ago and I started participating in it more like 20 years ago and don't get me wrong it's far from resolved but the cultural shift has been palpable in the spaces that I've been around. Um, now, am I convinced that my you know, 18-year-old undergraduate students are 100% safe from violence in those spaces? No. Um, but the fact that now you do see, for example, in ordinary pubs or bars, sort of openly stated safety policies on the inside of toilet cubicle doors, like if you feel unsafe, you know, tell a bartender that you need an angel shot or tell them that you need to get the number one tram there's sort of all this code language that you're allowed to use you know and they'll call you a taxi right away the fact that that is now a lot more normalized is not nothing when I started playing in clubs security guards did not see it as their role to make women feel safe that was not my experience and many didn't see it as their job to respond even to women asking for help or anybody asking for help so there's that the sort of um fighting gender oppression but I think above and beyond this fight capitalism because you know I was thinking about how Lenin was for a a communist mass women's movement that ran alongside the general mass movement that included everyone now he preferred not to call it feminist but he called it practical revolutionary expediency and so in that sense you know whatever you call it gender relations in a capitalist society are going to keep being toxic you can put in gender equality policies at the micro level all you like But if we're working with the overarching goal of profit, which in club cultures and other informal creative economies takes the form of rather pushy entrepreneurialism, it is just not possible to prioritise social justice and gender equality. Mm. Profit will always win the day. Well, let's move on to profit because, yes, this book is um, an anti-sexist book, but it's also an anti-capitalist one. You mentioned that gigantic rave in Las Vegas clearly no one puts that on for fun friends might put on a rave for fun but that is a big corporate entity so we're looking at a situation where nightclubs dance music festivals like all professional music um, events and uh, and performers are out to make a profit so is there any way out of that situation it's a tricky one people who do things so-called underground can operate to some extent outside sort of standard work relations but only kind of (laughs) so I for example I DJed at an you know an anarchist squat house for free once and everything was taking place for quote-unquote free you know we, we could put down donations for our drinks so that there was no unlicensed sale of alcohol and we were just going to a group of people's share house but you know, these were 19-year-old students and how many years can you do that for? Because uh, a lot of work goes into putting on music events. It's a very labour-intensive kind of work. And then you have to ultimately ask, in a capitalist society, if you're running events that don't deal in the cash economy or in the economy, what are you actually asking of people? 
uh, you're asking them to give their time and labour for no remuneration, but people can hardly feed themselves and pay their rent. So there's a practical wall that you end up hitting and it's a, it's a nice side intervention and it's possible for people to have spare money they can spend, but in the big picture, it's no solution. And so, you know, the alternative, you know, what's the alternative? A risk of being repetitive, it's to end capitalism. You know, I enjoy sometimes dreaming about what something like dance music and DJ culture would look like in a socialist society and with the pressures of competition and the marketplace removed and honestly it's really hard to say because they're so inextricable in the world we live in but you know we can dream. And I think it's also important to see that the left and progressive forces can occupy a lot of this cultural ground. Um, An important part of my political development was rock against racism in Britain in the 1970s. And I'm not a a big musical person, but the act of being involved in that was a part of building a very big movement against racism and against uh, the Nazis who were organising then. So the left shouldn't give up the ground of culture. We shouldn't abandon music and say, oh, well, it's a capitalist enterprise. What can you do about it? There are ways in which we can turn this around. So... How do you see the intersection between music, culture in general, and politics? There are so many. Um, For one thing, you know, participating in music in some form is a human right. If you look at societies that oppress people in other ways, musical expression is often one of the things that is also oppressed. It's very, very common. Of course, on the flip side of that, music can also be oppressive, either in how it's used You know, I'm thinking of torture in Guantanamo Bay, very famously, heavy metal music played to people at extremely loud volumes as a means of torture, or, you know, in what it expresses, and I'm thinking of neo-Nazi bands and their lyrics, for example, and what they promote. So I think people often think about music in terms of how it is political in almost exclusively positive terms or for what its potential is for political emancipation, but it can also act in whatever nefarious ways the actors using it want it to. So I think it's a really important thing to remember as well. Uh, You know, other intersections include the fact that music is often politicised regardless of whether the musicians in question intend it to be. And in addition, music, I think, can inspire people to act politically sometimes and that for me is something about what you're describing in Rock Against Racism. Then there's the fact that uh, music can be associated with social and political movements and is sometimes used to facilitate a kind of emotional affect that helps to get people into a mindset for protest or resistance. Uh, So this happens with, you know, drumming and loud instruments at demonstrations or marches and it also happens in uh, workers' songs, in choral workers' songs, which um, have existed for the last 120 years in their current form and longer uh, in other forms. There's the rather kind of, uh, I think, obvious political uses of music that people often overlook because they are so obvious, but it's used in party political campaigns. And people often remember those campaigns partly for their music. So I'm thinking of, you know, Gough Whitlam's the It's Time ad. Very, very uh, memorable, that one. A lot of people remember it and can still sing it the use of innumerable bands by the 2016 Trump campaign against their wishes often. Mm. You know, that, that, that was quite a high-profile one. 
And then there's slightly less obvious interactions between music and politics in society. And one of those is how music is sometimes used as a form of cultural diplomacy, as a kind of conflict resolution tool, you know, to bridge differences across nations or across sides of a conflict. There are entire cultural diplomacy roles and sort of subsets of those roles that are devoted to that kind of work. I know people who have done that kind of work and it's interesting because you get the sense that there's a, a bit like dance music, there's a kind of belief in the latent potentiality of that kind of work and the power of music to connect people. But the end game is not completely clear beyond the interaction itself and the sort of positivity of playing music with other people who might be from a different side of a conflict. And then, of course, there's there's this phenomenon that people associate musicians such as Bono or Roger Waters with, which is music as a form of awareness raising, which can sometimes translate to fundraising for specific causes. There are people who might not have otherwise cared about a particular cause, but who would pay money to go and see their favourite artist perform at a concert. And, of course, this was the sort of thing that events like Live Aid in 1985 were built around and the spate of events that followed it. I went to Live 8, I think it was, which was in the early 2000s, and that was a climate-focused one. And, yeah, there have been several since. And I guess this one is, is less sort of publicly political, but I think it's still important. There's the sort of politics of the of gender and class and technology in, in the domestic sphere because music technologies have been in the home for the whole of the 20th century. And one scholar, Keir Kightley, shows that through these advertisements in High Fidelity magazine in the 1950s, new home sound systems were sold to returned servicemen after World War II through the idea that, that these men could escape the shackles of their domestic lives, of their wives and children, of their sense of emasculation via sound and high quality, high fidelity, fancy technology, listening to music. It was sort of the idea of the man cave that got really consciously marketed to this class of people. And it was also an idealization of the middle class home. You know, there were so many components to it that were about hobbyist fantasy through consumption which when we, we think about the kind of tech nerd today, still is quite prevalent, I would say. And this is not just a sort of organic evolution of how people have thought about these things. It was actively pushed by corporations who made these technologies. So capitalism has even influenced gender relations in music. And I think that that's not an insignificant point. And I guess the last one that I would mention, but only mention because it's been done a lot already by others, is expression of political ideas through lyrics through the words of songs and there's there's so much analysis of specific songs that people have read politics into but for me I suppose that's important but maybe less interesting because I think the politics in music isn't in the words of one song or another it's in the kind of social formation that music can add to kind of political cause or environment or group of people. So for me, the, the ensemble of people singing at a protest is much more 
powerful, whatever it is they're singing, than the lyrics in a specific song by Bruce Springsteen or whoever. Mm. Not that that's not important, but I find it perhaps is less significant for a Marxist analysis of what music's political potential is. Yeah, that's an interesting idea because you're saying that politics is more than the lyrics, but the lyrics are also important from time to time. Um, I was thinking while you were talking about the way in which on protests we chant. Now, I don't know what the technical dividing line is between a chant and music. You're the academic, you can tell me. But when you get into uh, call and response type chanting, you're actually edging into music, it seems to me. And I've been on, certainly been on protests where people have been a bit nervous and we've started singing and you feel stronger. Your shoulders go back. You feel like you're part of a collective. Um, I don't remember I don't remember the words of any of the songs, but I do remember the, the sensation. Having said that, lyrics can also matter. I'm not trying to reduce everything to lyrics. And obviously dance doesn't even have lyrics. But I look back and think of dancing to Free Free Nelson Mandela. The lyrics were extremely important in in building and consolidating an anti-apartheid movement in my era. Uh, and I'm sure, without you know embarrassing myself, I'm sure there's plenty of lyrics around today. And as you say, on the far right, um, the, the Nazi bands use lyrics very clearly to ferment you know, foul racism. So I suppose the question is, okay, lyrics can play a role, sometimes a very important role, but how can musicians and performers be both progressive and avoid being boring? I love that question. I wouldn't want to be prescriptive on how musicians and performers want to express their politics or to be political. Some musicians do it very effectively through their music uh, and if that brings them joy and inspires others, then that is powerful. That can be through lyrics, but it can also be through the impact of the sound of their music, which is something that we don't have a very effective language for describing, but we know it's real when we feel it, exactly like what you described the impact of participating in chants or rhythmic chanting is in protests. You know, something about that social interaction is very powerful. Others may just want to make music that's about anything else or isn't about anything at all, that it's just made for people to enjoy, you know, to be or, or maybe to be challenged because some musicians have that goal rather than you know, quote-unquote, simply entertaining people. Not that there's anything wrong with simply being entertained. And for them, you know, music is just about making themselves and other people happy and fostering a sense of community and a sense of coming together in a social setting, which is a big part of music. But in their case, if politics is something that they care about, then, you know, perhaps that happens outside of their musical lives. And I think supporting social and political movements they care about is a good thing. That doesn't have to be extremely public in nature, despite the pressures that I think we often see and that might indicate that I think a lot of people feel obliged to to make those things public as soon as they have any kind of public platform. But if they're well known, it certainly can help. But supporting a cause in some kind of tangible way is a good thing, regardless of whether it happens in their music or not. And I, I don't think that any of these ways of being progressive are boring. I mean, perhaps boring would be if someone only ever wrote protest songs about a quite particular political issue. I don't think most musicians do that. And I think most musicians themselves um, always want to challenge themselves. So I, I don't imagine that the danger is that, that musicians being progressive 
is boring. But I do understand what you mean, that sometimes it can come across as a bit ham-fisted and unsubtle and perhaps preachy, and nobody really wants to feel like they're being preached at. So in that sense, the answer is they have to be very good musicians and they have to be good songwriters in order not to do that. I was hoping you were to say that because I, I don't think we should be ashamed to say that different people have different talents. You give me a musical instrument, I will drive you out of the room. Uh, <laughs> you give me a paintbrush and it will be a complete waste of a piece of canvas. But there are people who can, either through music or other forms of art, because music is a form of art, uh, can explore and illuminate and, and, and transcend, if you like to use that earlier word. So it's not down to just what the lyrics say, it's how they're expressed. And someone who's got it can actually get away with very political lyrics and people will love it and enjoy it. And conversely, if people are too doctrinaire but they're not actually interesting, then it becomes extremely boring. Yeah. And just, just on that, I was remembering as you spoke that there was this moment where... Beyonce had a performance where she had the word feminist in huge letters, kind of um, neon letters behind her in this huge, probably stadium-sized performance. And unsurprisingly, some people loved it and celebrated it and said, great, this extremely popular musician is now validating the word feminist. And of course, other people critiqued it in all kinds of ways and through all sorts of angles and I think both of those things are fine and I think the outcome of that was it did bring it into a conversation Mm. in a mainstream sense that the more you know huge commercial names attach themselves to those sorts of issues the more people talk about them in the mainstream so it's not a bad thing in and of itself if one of the top 0.1% of celebrity musicians is, is doing that work for us you know true but I think it's unlikely that anybody with explicit socialist politics will rise to the level of Beyonce but you think of (laughs) Billy Bragg Billy Bragg is a bit of a superstar within a much smaller environment and a smaller universe but his singing is at some level pretty basic but it really, no pun intended touches a chord and he is clearly using his music in the service of progress and and struggle. Absolutely. Only a few weeks ago, he was on the picket line outside the ABC headquarters in uh, in Sydney, for instance. They're in solidarity with workers who are taking strike action, and and there isn't a dividing line between his action on the picket line and his music. But he does it in a way, and I can't explain why. But he does it in a way that makes it entertaining at the same time. And I suppose that's the uh, the gold standard. Yeah, and Paul Robeson did it as well. Absolutely. Moving on from your book, can we take this opportunity to talk about what broader questions you've come across or discovered or discussed in relation to the music industry in in your time, well, as a DJ, but now as an academic? Uh, Honestly, most of my life as an academic so far has been devoted to researching dance music cultures. So at the moment, I'm finishing up not only the book, but also existing articles and other chapter contributions on the general topic area that have been uh, sitting in the pipeline for a while. But I'm also starting research on a social history of the labour chorus. 
and this is very much in its infancy, but it's something I've been thinking about for what a long time. What do you mean time. by the Labour Chorus? Are you talking about choirs? Yes. Oh, yeah. Workers' choirs or workers' choruses as they're sometimes known, yeah. Mm. Um, and I know that, for example, in the late 1800s in Melbourne, we have archival evidence that there was already a trade union choir. There's a rich tradition of that uh, around the world, and I'm not necessarily going to focus on the songs themselves, although they will play a role in the research, but but in the role of the ensembles within the union movements. I think there's a lot of really interesting questions to ask there, including what has happened to them today. Well, there is a Victorian Trades Hall Choir here in Melbourne. There is. I've attended some of their rehearsals. Isn't one of the interesting things about choirs is not everybody has to be a good singer to get a good outcome. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things about, you know, labour choirs or, you know, let's say broadly left-wing causes choirs, because I can think of, uh, for instance, there's we have a couple of climate choirs in Melbourne now. We have community choirs that come together in the service of specific causes as well. Peace choirs is a big one as well. I think the thing about them is that typically they don't require auditions, unlike you know professional choirs or whatever, those that might perform in big cathedrals for public events. These, these choirs are not about singing perfectly. That is not at all the purpose. The purpose is, well, what is the purpose? I, I'll find out and report back. But there's, there's something, something about being in community with people who have a baseline level of understanding of politics and who want to do something that is enjoyable in association with that, not just go to meetings. And I think there is something to be said for making politics and struggle enjoyable. Well, perhaps you need to come to a football match, by, we, by which I mean a soccer match, <laughs> and stand on the, on, the, on the terraces and sing along with us because when 20,000 people sing at a Melbourne Victory game, it's a powerful experience. I'm not sure if it's political, but it's bloody powerful. Absolutely. I'm in. Okay. Oh, look, I think we're coming towards an end here. We said at the beginning that this is not the Sound of Music subsegment of uh, our podcast series, but it is a subsegment, and the aim is to have a number of episodes over coming months. There's no particular timeline, but it will happen. Looking at the intersection between music and politics, you're going to be a central part of this. So can you give people a bit of a sneak peek at what listeners might be getting? Sure. Well, we have locked in an interview with uh, Emeritus Professor John Street, who will be talking about a project called Our Subversive Voice, which is a 400-year history of the British protest song. And I'll be really interested to hear what he's learned from that. And they have a public archive on a website that everybody can look up if they want to. And there will also be others, but I think we'll keep them a surprise for now because they're being planned as we speak. Well, on that, no pun intended, note, we'll finish off. I'm going to have a lot of fun with this. We'll finish off here. Thanks very much, Tommy. Thanks, David.